Hi, this is Mike Overstreet, the Director of Growth Groups at E3, and this is the Growth Group Leader Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about something very serious, and it's going to be one of the longer episodes because of that. Um, And I just want to make sure that I cover as many bases as possible and give this topic the importance that it deserves. And what we're going to be talking about is suicide prevention, or how to handle um, suicide in growth groups and as a growth group leader. And because this is such a serious topic, I would also like to throw out a trigger warning. If you are in any way triggered by the conversation of suicide or self-harm, just be aware that that is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. And I want to talk about this just to prepare you in case you do happen to come across someone with suicidal thoughts or someone who has experienced a loved one in their lives committing suicide. It's just important to have early preparation for what it's like to walk through something like this as a leader who's working with broken people. To start off, I want to talk about um, just some of the basic kind of statistics and things that you just need to be aware of when it comes to suicide. One, suicide is more common than people think. It is the 10th leading cause of death across all ages in the United States. It is ahead of homicide and other violent crimes. Also, most research points out that almost everyone has at some point at least thought about self-harm. So it's important just to know that it's more prevalent than people think, uh, thoughts of suicide. Now, when it comes to which groups die by suicide, research shows that it is uh, a lot more common and across demographics than people tend to think. It is very high rates in teenagers, you know, as they start to grow and as they start to go through hardship, but it's also a point in people's lives where mental health issues start to show up. However, the age 45 to 54 is actually where the highest rate of suicide deaths takes place, and the second highest is 85-year-olds and higher. So it's across age groups. Uh, Do not think that there is a specific age group that is removed from this possibility. In terms of gender, both groups struggle with it, but men are often more successful at it, yet women try more often than men do. So gender is not a a demographic that can determine whether suicide will happen or not either. And then mental health factors are a crucial component. 94.5% of people who make suicide plans and 88% of people who actually attempt it have some form of mental illness, and depression is the most common cause of it. One in five Americans has a mental health problem that contributes to suicide, and there's a dramatic increase if there is drug use involved. So those are other factors that play a role. There is also a clear genetic and biological component to suicide. Brain chemistry plays a crucial role in uh, often in what leads someone to make an attempt on their life. And it's also important to note that circumstances are not a clear determinant of whether someone will attempt the, uh, attempt on their life. While circumstances often are a triggering event, their suicide attempts are very complex, and they have many factors that go beyond an individual's immediate circumstance. So be aware that while circumstances can play a role in triggering an attempt, they are not the only factor in determining whether one will happen. Now, as a leader, the first thing I want to talk about is how to help someone in a suicide crisis. The first step you need to take is looking for warning signs. Warning signs are any noticeable hint that there is a risk of suicide and that that risk has increased. 
especially if it's combined with a traumatic or triggering event in the person's life. Some clear warning signs are things like them increasingly talking about death or dying or even suicide itself. Obviously, any threats on their life is a warning sign. If there's any signs of a worsening mental health situation or increased depression or anger or agitation, that's a warning sign. A dramatic brightening of a mood is actually a warning sign that people often don't notice. So if someone is depressed and suddenly they go up into a heightened state of, of emotion, that can be a sign. Seeking access to any level of means, if they start asking about where they can get a gun or pills or anything like that, that's a warning sign. Reckless behavior, increased substance abuse, decreased hygiene or self-care, social withdrawal, or any sort of preparatory behavior, like when someone starts giving away prized possessions. Those are also warning signs. And when you see these, you should take action. Don't assume that other people are all seeing the same thing. Be the first one to speak up or to take action to help. Step two in intervention is to assess for suicidal thinking. Now, this is super important. Do not be afraid to ask the person directly. Use clear and concise language and ask clear and concise questions. I know it's scary to ask someone, hey, are you thinking about this directly? But it's important that you do so in a way that starts the conversation, shows that you care, and shows that you're not looking to shame or judge them. Just be clear, let them know that you're doing it because you care about them, and don't try to use vague or, or uncertain language. Next, listen to the person without judgment. Build relational trust by just listening. Don't make any guarantees that you can't keep. Don't say that, don't guarantee confidentiality, for example, because you might have to reach out to someone if this is a serious situation. And try not to promise things that you cannot actually do. Rather, just listen, talk, ask good questions, and be clear. And be firm on the fact that this is about the person's safety. So if you need to break confidentiality to get them help, be prepared to do that. So we move into step three, which is assessing where an individual is on a suicide spectrum. And actions and interventions change depending on where they're at in that. And what I would tell you is make sure you let us or a medical mental health professional determine what interventions are needed. Do not try to go through this alone. We are trained to make calls about where a person is on this spectrum and how we should best respond. So make sure that you have reached out to a pastor or to a mental health professional for guidance on what to do with wherever they fall on the spectrum that we're about to talk about. And the spectrum of suicidal uh, behavior and prevention is largely marked by a few key markers that correspond with how to best help this person. And it's important to note that all levels across the spectrum should include a referral to a mental health professional, a counselor, a therapist, and a pastor. So it's not like we get to a certain point and it's time to reach out for some help and some guidance. This should happen no matter where they're at in this process. So the key markers move in a progression. This is one thing that a lot of people don't know about suicide and about threats on taking their own life. And that is, there are pretty clear markers that people move through in a process of thinking about harming themselves towards actually doing it. So the first marker is ideation. It's the first step in this process. Ideation is just any clear 
are vague or even mentioned that they've been thinking about self-harm, that the idea has even crossed their mind. And when it's in the ideation stage, there usually aren't clear specifics. It's just that they've thought about it. The first thing you should do is tell a pastor immediately. Talk to me. Reach out to any of our pastors. And then we can help you get in contact with a medical professional for more guidance. Consultation is crucial in this. Do not go it alone. The intervention part, part of this should be left up to the trained counselors that, are, that you've brought into the situation. However, one thing that we would encourage you to do is to keep following up with the person after the initial conversation. Keep checking in. Show them that you care. Show them that you're not just trying to sweep it under the rug or it's too uncomfortable to talk about. Keep reaching out to them and, and just keep assessing where they're at and having an open and present dialogue with how they're feeling. And also just be clear that you're looking for any signs of escalation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But being connected and being reminded that they are loved, that you care, that you aren't going anywhere, that you're still reaching out and checking in on them is a huge or a crucial preventative method um, that is, is huge for helping someone get through a season like this. So you're providing presence and, and attention and care. And then we, as, as the pastoral staff connected with a mental health professional, will start working through various intervention plans, things like safety plans, things like increased social support, things like thinking through how we can connect them to coping mechanisms and to various strategies that intervene in this cycle, catch those thoughts as they arise, and help them process them in more healthy ways. And as a group, your primary concern is to stay connected to the pastor who is walking along with this person, to keep communicating with them, to keep communicating with any mental health professional that has become involved, and just to provide increased social support, texting them, calling them, checking in on them, getting dinner with them, just giving them a little bit more attention than maybe you had before the situation arose, and then obviously be in prayer for them. Now, the next stage and this is an escalation in terms of seriousness, is intent. And this is like the hardest part to measure, but it is one of the most important. And that is, do they have a real intent beyond just thinking about it to harm themselves? Is it moving into a space where they're actually starting to think about what it would mean to do this and actually starting to prepare themselves to take action? And this is a point where if you have not already, medical professionals must get involved. Mental health professionals must be connected with so they can help you judge where this person is at and make assessments of what the best thing to do is. The next stage is one of the hardest, and that is planning. When a person moves to making concrete plans, we are moving into an area of high alert. Planning is best understood when you look for an increased uh, attention to specifics and the way the person talks about it. Have they started to think through any level of increased specifics about how or when or where? This could be anything as small as, as them talking about, well, I wouldn't do it around my kids, or I'll wait until, I wouldn't do it if my wife was going to find me. Or they start using more specifics about a specific day or a time, or if they have any specific circumstances they're waiting on in their life, where they're like, well, if this doesn't work out as I hoped, this marriage meeting, this counseling, well, that's when I would consider doing it. This is a major red flag. The moment they start showing any thought about how and when and where they would do it is a moment that they really are beginning to escalate in their ideation and the potential for them to act on it. And you need to call me, you need to call a pastor, and you need to call a professional immediately. 
Do not hesitate over confidentiality at this step. You need to get other people involved. And once again, it's about the person's safety more than anything. If anyone seems to be forming a plan, you need to refer that person to an immediate evaluation with a mental health outpatient clinic like Appalachia Center or a hospital emergency department. And when, when you reach out to us, we will begin working with you and your group about important actions. There will be things like means restrictions, getting the pills away that, from the person if that's what they were talking about planning, um, getting guns out of their house, things like that. And there will be a variety of, of activities and actions that the mental health provider and, and us as leaders will help you take, um, recognizing that things like means restrictions are not fail-safe but there are multiple layers of actions we can take to help this person get right and get healthy. And I cannot stress enough, at this point, medical help and professional help is needed. It should have been sought out earlier. I mean, I would, like I said, I would recommend reaching out to us or to a professional, even at the ideation state, certainly at the intent state, and definitely at the planning state, because this is where things can start escalating quickly. The next stage is means. And now we are moving into the highest level of risk. If they have any mention of how they would do it, and if you know them to have those means available to them, if they start talking about specifics of I'm going to take pills, or I'm going to shoot myself, or I'm going to hang myself, we are moving into a dangerous stage. And when I say dangerous, I just mean that they are at real risk of harming themselves. So if there are any specifics in this area, and you know they have the means to do it, immediate action needs to be taken. And this often corresponds with, an, with what professionals have found is an end of ambivalence. What I mean by that is they are now at the point where they have gone far enough that a specific stressor or an unforeseen circumstance could be a triggering event for them to take action without thinking it through. And that is why this stage is so dangerous. You see, the ideation, the intent, and the planning stage usually can be slow and progressing. Not always, but can be. But once they get to means and then the last stage, we are talking about something that can happen very quickly from that point. So it requires immediate action, and it may even require hospitalization, which is a call that the pastoral figure and the medical professional will help you walk through and get help with. Now, our last stage is the most dangerous, and it is the imminent stage. It's connected to means in a really real way. And it's usually not long after they reach the imminent stage that we are talking about a serious attempt on someone's life. So what imminence means is that they are ready to act and something has triggered them to begin the process of carrying out that action. And this requires immediate action. This will often look like them reaching out if they are willing to in a really broken state or sending you a text message or a phone call or a note that is very concerning things that include specifics, things that include apologies, things that show that they are preparing themselves to attempt, uh, make an attempt at their own life. At this moment, there are some important things that we need leaders to do. Reach out to us immediately. Um, if you are on the phone with the person, get someone near you to reach out to us. Get us involved ASAP. If you can, go to them. Stay, stay with them, be with them, be present with them so that they're not alone. And do not leave them alone until the situation has been resolved. If you're on the phone, try to keep them on the phone. Keep talking to them. Keep asking questions. Keep trying to de-escalate through calm and caring conversation 
urge them, remind them how much they are loved, remind them how important they are, and just try to keep them on the phone. You need to have a crisis line ready and the sheriff's number ready and even 911 ready if it is a very serious situation. If you are with them, encourage them to check themselves into the Appalachie Center. They can go there for a f- evaluation where they can get help. Do not trust them to go on their own. Just because they say they're going to go does not mean they will. Try to go with them. If it's over the phone, like I said, keep talking to them and call the police if it seems necessary. And I always urge people to err on the side of safety more than anything. So if it is even a possibility, do not be afraid to call the sheriff for a wellness check or to call the police if it seems urgent or imminent. The emergency department includes physical and suicide evaluation, and they can come and help you uh, walk through this part of the process. And this, once imminence comes, hospitalization is often required. And when we have to hospitalize someone, we're looking for high risk of self-harm, high risk of harming others, or an inability to care for themselves because they are not in a proper mental state. So we need them at this point likely to get connected to a emergency center, to a hospital, or even Baker Acted so that they can get the help they need and they can get through the next couple of days where they are at the highest level of risk. Now, I have a few notes. First, I highly, 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 I cannot stress enough, highly recommend you reach out to myself or a pastor if any risk is perceived. Do not wait. It, it's better to err on the side of safety than to, to guess wrong in this situation. So even if it's ideation, we can talk you through it. We, it may not be a phase where we have to intervene, but we can help you with how to talk to this person and get them help. We can give you strategies reach out to us and do not try to go it alone. It is too stressful for you as a leader. And quite frankly, it requires more training and more equipping than an average person has. There are people who are trained in this area that we can get you help with. Now, there are some key resources uh, that I would like to make you aware of. First, mental health professionals. E3 has people in our community that, that work in this field And we also have a list of possible referrals that we can give you, people that we trust, that you can give to this person and connect this person with for counseling, therapy, or psychiatry. So please ask me if you want that list or if you have any questions or if you're just looking for something to have on hand. Next, know the sheriff's office number. This is a 24-hour non-emergency number. It is 850-606-5800. And this is a number that you can call to send a wellness check. So maybe you're just concerned about the person, but you don't think it's a clear and present danger. And they can go and evaluate the person and talk to the person and maybe connect them to a mental health professional. If it is an emergency, do not hesitate to call 911. They, are, they will be able to get you in contact or send someone out to handle it if it is a situation that is escalating quickly. In both police cases, I recommend that when you call, ask for a crisis intervention team officer or a CIT officer. You can use the phrase directly. I am requesting the aid of a crisis intervention team officer. And this is important because these are people professionally and specifically trained to handle crisis situations. Now, if they're in a dangerous space and they're not willing to take care of themselves, if they're not willing to seek help, 
you can always also begin Baker Act proceedings, which is an involuntary hospitalization or commitment that will get the person put into a facility for a few days to assess where they're at and hopefully get them calm and get them through the roughest part. If you want to do this, you want to call Leon County Probate Court at 850-577-4180. I also would like to give you a suicide intervention hotline. You can call 211 or you can call 850-617-3333. And this is a hotline that you can use to talk to people who are trained to de-escalate situations. You can talk to this person with the other person, or you can just give them the number and get them to call them. But this is a great resource for anyone who is walking through someone going through this. And then finally, educate yourself more. It is super important that we educate ourselves on things like mental illness, things like suicide, just so that we can be equipped in case the worst happens. And one of the great resources for this in Tallahassee is NAMI. It is www.nami-tallahassee.org. And this is just a resource that walks through all sorts of mental health crisis preparation, how to care for mentally ill people, and how to deal with suicide attempts or threats. And if you also want to read any number of books on it, I have a whole list, and I can help you buy those books as well. All you have to do is ask. Now, for the last 10 minutes of this episode, we're going to talk about how to help people who have people in their lives who have attempted or are struggling with suicidal thoughts. And this is equally important to leading your group, just how to care for your members if there are people in their lives that are dealing with this, because it can be such a huge stressor on the emotions and the spiritual well-being of people who are trying to walk alongside people in this part of life. So those who help, especially family members, often go through intense emotional swings after a loved one attempts suicide or as they talk about dealing with suicide. And you just need to be prepared to help them too. It's important to realize how many people are impacted by suicide and suicidal attempts. It can have a devastating impact on on many people that surround the person. So be aware, people who have family members or have loved ones struggling with this will have emotions that are very common. They'll struggle with guilt and blame. They'll ask things like, what if? And it's important that you just let this person talk about it. Don't try to reject those feelings, but just let them process it and keep encouraging them and keep being with them. Push against any form of blame. Don't let them blame themselves. Help them, if you can, understand that they are not responsible and cannot control other people's actions. Look for fear and powerlessness. People have this fear that another attempt of other loved ones is imminent. It's very natural. And just let them talk about it and encourage them to to try to stay grounded and to think through the reality of their situation. Be open to the fact that they may be hostile. Anger is a huge part of this, and it's okay. Let them go through grief. Next, look for ways that you can support family and community members dealing with this. Follow through on treatment. Try to get them into counseling. Understand that they need help to help people or to process grief. Get education. Encourage them to read about it. Encourage them to um, be taking action to get healthier and to know more about this themselves. Make sure that they are surrounded by people who care about them. Make sure that they know things like safety plans and hope kits, the things that we talked about earlier. Make sure they know contacts for who to reach out to. And educate them on things like triggers if you can. 
Uh, and this is another thing that it's actually probably better that you refer people struggling with this to a pastor or to a medical uh, mental health provider because they can walk through what kind of relational triggers there are and what kind of life situations to be aware of. And then just be an advocate. Advocate for your group member who is struggling. Talk to them. Encourage them to get help. Speak up for them if they are not really strong enough to do it themselves. And then as a leader, you need to know that the ministry of presence is the most important thing when another person has loses someone or is struggling with this um, in a family member. Just be with them. You are not a problem solver. No one expects you to pro- solve their problems, but they do want to know that they are not alone and that they have someone with them. And then lastly, make sure that you are seeking self-care. It is impossible not to get burned out if you are not taking care of yourself because these situations are draining. They are hard. They are exhausting. And you just need to make sure that you are getting care if you are trying to walk with someone going through this or who has a family member who is. Now, lastly, I want to talk about some of the ways that we can help suicide survivors, people in your group who maybe lose someone to suicide. There are a couple unique attributes and emotions to expect. First is shock. All death is shocking, but suicide is even more so. Be prepared for that. Look for fear. Like I said, they might start being afraid of losing other people. That's very common. Be prepared to help them with anything like stigma. People who survive suicide often fear stigma from our culture because mental health and suicide is just not honored or talked about enough. So they may be afraid of judgment. They may be afraid that people look down on them, that they didn't do enough, that they didn't help their child enough, and just push against that stigma. Be willing to talk about it. Encourage them not to conceal it. Encourage them to be open and do not judge them or or trigger that um, any hiding by acting judgmental. Next, be aware that there needs to be a family and community response. We need to be open to talk and, and to be there for them and to just not do the normal thing, which is to be uncomfortable and remain silent about it, but to keep being direct in your questions and keeping them open and honest and talking about where they're at emotionally with this devastating event. Look for signs of guilt, survivor guilt, or for guilt that they could have done more. Push against that when you can, but do so in a loving way. And then just be aware of the family dynamics going on. This kind of drama, this kind of Uh, just traumatic event can be devastating if a family is already going through struggle, which they most likely are, and it can exasperate those. So encourage them to seek marital counseling, encourage them to keep also dealing with other issues and just be a safe place for them to process this. And always, always, always be aware of the grief cycle. They're going to move up and down it back and forth, and they will feel everything from grief to depression to anger. And you just need to be willing to get them to talk about this confusing array of emotions and to be continually sharing about it. One thing that people can get really exhausted by is how often people talk about this, but at the same time, you need to let them share their story as often as they need to because this is just a means of them processing and getting through it. So for any survivor, know the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, and depression. Know that that process is not linear. Know that it's often repeated and know that it can take years and just be ready to be present with them because that's all we're really asking you as a leader to do with anyone struggling with that grief. 
push against guilt. Make sure they're seeking out help. Make sure that you are avoiding any toxic helpers. Um, Making sure that the people that are helping them through this are not people that are unhealthy themselves to the best of your ability. Be a listening ministry of presence. Be non-judgmental. Keep them asking questions about faith. Expect things like doubt to come by and don't uh, judge them or, or push on them negatively for having things like doubt, but just be a safe space for them to talk about that. And then almost more importantly, lament with them. One of the most important things you can do is just have your heart break alongside them. Let them know that they're not alone in just feeling that pain and just be there for them, process with it, help them talk about it and, and sit with them. Now, I know this has been a heavy topic, and I know that was a lot of information, but I really do just want to equip you to be able to be prepared and to be ready for when this happens. God willing, it doesn't. But if it happens, to be able to help to the best of your ability. And as always, just to reiterate it one more time, do not go it alone. Make sure you are connecting with me. Make sure you're connecting with a pastor. Make sure you have mental health professionals alongside you. And we will help you get through this together as a community that heals. Thank you.